Welcome to another episode of How the Art World Works. I'm your host, Megan Flanders. Today's episode features a guest of many talents, museum curator, former president of the San Francisco Art Institute, and current critic for the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper. Charles has had a toe in the water at every level of the art world, and sat down to candidly break it down for us at the Chronicle's in-house media facilities on an absolutely gorgeous day in San Francisco. Thank you to Charles and the Chronicle for being so gracious. Without further ado, please welcome Charles Desmarais. Can't listen to this walking okay, down to work. Go. I have to listen to yeah, it right. down and back and down again. All right, one more time. How does the art world work? The art world. There is no art world, or there are many art worlds. And and one of the things that I have learned over far too many years of doing this is how passionate people are about their own art world. I have a number of friends who are illustrators, including very prominent illustrators with covers, multiple covers for the New Yorker magazine and that sort of thing. Um, he and his um, cohort would have a very, very different sense of what the art world is from perhaps what many of your readers might think of as the art world. And it's true, it's as true here as it is in New York, but in New York it's particularly obvious that for all the artists that there are in the city, there are multiple art, world, art worlds there. You know, if you're involved in the whole crew around the kitchen, you're, you know, that's one sense of what the art world is that is dramatically different from someone who's represented by a major gallery in Chelsea. Someone with an art, a museum career might be very different from somebody who has a very credible career making paintings that are collected and enjoyed by a community that is not so hooked into to the museum world. But I, I think it's clear to me what you mean when you say the art world, which is that that nexus of museums and prominent galleries that that most of the people that oh that I've dealt with in my life because I've been a museum director and a college president are you see as their ambition and that works in ways some of which are really admirable and some of which are not very admirable at all I, th- I think the uh, the influence of money and collectors is has always been really significant in the way art worlds work but i think it's particularly insidious and particularly difficult right now for people that are trying to come into it particularly if and if they have no access that is being provided to them by somebody else you know how is do you a get start? a gallerist <laughs> is it still worth it to get a gallerist oh it's un- unquestionably worth it to get a good gallerist because the oftentimes it's the gallerists that are that are the conduit to the museums and to the collectors. In fact, I've had this theory that there used to be a pyramid, at least or put it another way. I understood the pyramid to be artists at to- at the top and then perhaps museums at the next level and then um, collectors at the next level and the galleries down at the bottom that were sort of feeding into this. 
I now understand the, the pyramid to be pretty much inverted. It's quite the opposite. And artists are thought of too often and treated, whether, they're, you know, whether people would say this in so many words, artists are treated as the base on which everything else is, is balanced. And it's really the, the galleries that are at the top. But that's only certain galleries. And I think we all, I don't have any better information than, than anybody that reads the New York Times, but we all have heard about really very respectable galleries that are losing their leases and, and going out of business as the, that level of, that, of the art world, the level that deals with international museums and such, gets more and more run by a, um, a very small group of major galleries. Who's still a good gallerist? You mean locally? At all. Or just at all? <laughs> My hesitation is only because I think almost everybody that I know that is in that is that runs a gallery does it with uh, their own idea of what integrity is, and they try their best. But they do, but they have different views of what their job is. So I know a lot of gallerists who are really, really committed to their artists, and they think that that's that's their most important responsibility. There are others who maybe are more focused on taking care of their families or certainly uh, who are focused on their, their collectors and think of their collector as their, their primary, primary responsibility. <clears throat> it makes me think, actually, to get off the gallery for just for a second mm -hmm. and think about museums, it, it's always struck me that there, while all museums would tell you that care of the works of art and relationships, if we're talking about living artists, relationships with artists and relationships with audience are important. But I think different museums emphasize different parts of that, of that three-pronged, three-spoke wheel. And so there are museums that really say, we are about the artist first, and that's our primary responsibility. Others who say it's community that comes first. And then the, the sort of more traditional sense is, that it's the work of art that is the most important thing, and that's the thing that's going to go on beyond all of us, beyond the current audience, beyond the, um, the artist today. And, you know, I, I guess I was part of, a, part of a wave that really focused more on community, and uh, even as we had respect for those other two spokes um, during my time in museums. How did you get into museums? I kind of fell into it, I guess. I, you know, it's interesting because as I grew up as a blue-collar kid in Bridgeport, Connecticut. My dad was a sheet metal worker, um, oldest of seven kids, and we never went to museums. We had no sense of what that was about. But I, I, I was the smart kid in the neighborhood, which meant that I subscribed to Time Magazine, and I read in Time Magazine about the Museum of Modern Art, and I just thought, I was just fascinated by that whole idea. These were unsigned, little unsigned um, reviews back in that day. There, were, there wasn't, I don't have any sense, because I've gone back to look, I don't have any sense of really who the author was of these reviews in Time, but I, I, it just intrigued me before I ever actually saw significant works of art, significant paintings or sculpture. But to the point that when I was in my early teens, went to the Museum of Modern Art on my own to kind of find out what that was all about. It wasn't really until 
after college that it ever occurred to me that there are people who work in museums and that there's somebody <laughs> behind all that. But, you know, because it, and things right. are a little different now. We think about it differently today. And I think people are maybe more aware of the operation of museums. But at the time, is this monolithic thing. You know, you walk mm -hmm. into these halls and this stuff just kind of happens. You don't really understand um, where it all comes from. So at any rate, then I realized that people work in museums and, and went back and got actually an MFA, but a, a degree in critical studies at SUNY State University, New York at Buffalo, and a really interesting program that was run by the Visual Studies Workshop. I don't know if that's something oh, yeah. that you know of, which produced a lot of really good curators as well as artists. That just kind of, I'm, I'm known to be a good writer and, and always was a good writer for whatever reason. And I think that was particularly um, helpful to me in my career because that's how people got to know who you were um, from a distance and particularly before the internet and everything. If they saw your, your byline in a, in a magazine or something, then they, they sort of knew who you were. So that's how my career was built. I started in photography, starting writing about the history of photography and um, contemporary photography at a time when no one else was, went, not no one else, but, but the field wasn't really paying much attention, the art field wasn't really paying much attention to photography and film and video. And so I was writing about topics that when somebody did have interest, they would know my name and maybe if, you know 20 or 30 other names in the country. So. That's really what, what introduced me to things. And then I, not wanting to be just Mr. Photo, I, <laughs> I moved on to other fields, other parts of the field. What was your funnest job? My funnest job? Wow, that's interesting. In museums and uh, in the art world. In the art right? world. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. You could give us both answers. <laughs> <laughs> in the art world and out the art world. I guess probably my funnest job was in Cincinnati. I was the director of the Contemporary Art Museum in Cincinnati. It's called the Contemporary Art Center. There are prejudices about Midwestern cities that a lot of people in, in, um, on the coasts have, but I didn't really have that prejudice, and I was pleased to get a job at, a, at an institution that had a real reputation. Of course, that was the place that had been criminally prosecuted mm -hmm. for the art they showed when they showed Robert Maplethorpe's work. Um, and you came right after that, right? There was, a, there was an interim person who didn't oh, last okay. very long, but she, yeah. was there, she was there for just a year or two. Yeah. What I liked about it, first of all, it's a very, very pretty town, and I made good friends there. It was small enough that the director of the Contemporary Museum could get to know the mayor, other city leaders and such, and large enough to have some real weight to it. And the institution had been founded in 1939, one of the first contemporary art museums in the country. It's a non-collecting institution. So it had history and potential. And so we took it from a purpose-built space that was a very nice exhibition space, about 10,000 square foot space, but that was on a, on a second floor of a um, building downtown to building a museum building by Zaha, designed by Zaha Hadid, which the New York Times called the most important building in America since the Cold War when we finished it. So that was a great sense of achievement, map. and I got, to, I got to work with Zaha and work with extraordinary trustees and staff to make that happen. So that was, that was my best job, for sure. I enjoyed it a lot. But I also was ambitious enough to want to do bigger things, and I went from there to the Brooklyn Museum. 
How was that transition? Like, totally different culture, right? Very different culture. Um, the Brooklyn Museum is another great institution that that had more potential than than it was realizing. And even before I got there, well before I got there, Arnold Lehman was the director at the time, and he hired me to be deputy director for art was my title, which was to oversee a very large curatorial staff and conservation and library and all that. And I got to learn a lot from Arnold. I also got to learn perhaps things not to do, <laughs> which is, you know, because it was the first time really in my whole life I had, I wasn't the boss. I had, even in college, I was the manager of McDonald's and that's how I put myself through through school, so I was always the boss. I was the oldest of seven kids. I, so now to have a very energetic and for the most part right-thinking guy, you know, he wasn't all that bossy, I suppose, but, but, the, but, he, but it was his philosophy that drove things, and not mine, and that was a big lesson. Good for me, really, so that when when I came to be the president of the San Francisco Art Institute here, I think I, had, I think I was, I would like to say, I don't know if other people think so, <laughs> a better boss than I might have been had I not had that job. Now I'm pleased to say that I have a job where I have zero employees as opposed to hundreds. I technically have a boss and I hope, I guess maybe one of them, one one, somebody, somebody from around here might one day listen to this and they might not like the idea of what I'm going to say, which is I don't really feel that I have a boss. Because it's a creative environment. Exactly. And I decide what I'm writing about and pretty much decide my own schedule. I think, obviously, if I wasn't producing enough, they would fire me. Or if they didn't think that I had any readers, they, would, they wouldn't, you know, wouldn't want to keep me on. But... I, I'm left to make the decisions about what to write about and pretty much when it runs, although I, I virtually always have a Saturday piece that is a, a centerpiece on our um, arts and entertainment section, which is called Date Book. And then I do one to three other smaller things each week. So you're writing about the art that you used to curate, isn't that kind of an iffy situation? Like, because you know those artists personally? Well, um, when I got the job, I'm sure you read that when I got this job, when it was announced that I got this job, there were some people who objected to that because for the same reason that you're saying, that, um, that maybe I would know too many artists or I would know too many collectors or I would, you know, I've been a, I've been a museum director and a college president and a, so I would Maybe former students would be, you know, would have a special in, or, um, or people that might have been my trustees at some point, or collectors that I might have gone to. In fact, I would argue that I have more freedom because than I ever did in any of those other jobs to be critical, because I don't need them in the way that I once did. I don't, I don't need to ask a donor for money now, and I have no reason to. And I don't need to keep a student happy and in school because she's already, you know, I mean. Because you don't care if they fail now. <laughs> that's not true at all, but I, but I care in a different way. So, you know, so those things are different. And I think, I think there's many, many different ways to be a critic and many, many different kinds of critics. And I think 
what I offer is different from a lot of others. I offer a lot of experience in the field that others don't have, and I th have been told often that people find that an enhancement of what I, you know, of what I deal with. If everybody came out of that same background, it would be boring, but there aren't very many people that come out of the breadth of, I'm not gonna call it depth, because there's certainly a lot more, there are a lot deeper thinkers, I think, perhaps in the world than I am, but there are very, very few people who have the breadth of, of background that I have. Well, totally. And, and the communities are different and, and everything else. I was just thinking about, you know, when you're t trying to describe an art world, mm -hmm. it's very different if you're in a museum than yes. if you are in a college campus, yes, right? I so I'm thinking about sort of my own teaching background yeah. and the differences between when you operate in the art world as a participant or when you're teaching about it. They're very kind of different I things th in some way. I think you're absolutely right. About so I'm that. curious about how you think about that and, and how you might have thought about with your experience when you ended up at as a college president mm -hmm. uh, of an art school, how you thought about, you know, integrating an educational program into, you know, making people ready for the place that you used to well, work that, or something. That's a, that's a really interesting question. <clears throat> and I don't want to get too nerdy about it, but but we in love fact, nerdy. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll do, <laughs> I'll do my best to be as nerdy as I possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in fact, when I came to the San Francisco Art Institute, which is this great institution founded in 1871, has a you know, long history that well, well precedes me, I felt as though, and, and yet it's had its struggles, its financial struggles and its, and its um, relevancy struggles because the world changes and the institution mm -hmm. has to keep on changing. I felt as though the place really needed to be more connected to the community in the way that a museum might be, and not only be the ivory tower college kind of thing. And that was a vision that I brought to the institution and I think served it well in some ways. I think for one thing you can raise a lot more money when people think that their that their contributions are going to be more widely seen than, you know, than you know, if, if I've got a child in that school, I might really care to support it, but if it's your kid, maybe that's not my first priority. But if it's, a, but if it's a, um, an event that my neighbors might see and my name might be on it, then there's, there's that option. So I think I brought a very different vision of what the Art Institute could be to the place, and I think it served it well in many ways. However, not everybody liked it, and I, when I left, and I left completely on my own on my own terms because I wanted to come here. But uh, there were people who really celebrated that I was gone, and they've kind of pushed back the other way very rapidly. So, so I think that somehow relates to your question yeah. that you know that in fact you you might bring a knowledge of other parts of the field that would be valuable. But the the next part of it is that you've got to sell that to others, and you might know, or I might know, or feel I do. I might have a gut feeling about what's needed, but now, I, now my next task is to sell it to all of my trustees and my students and my faculty. And had I been there for 20 years, maybe I might have done that more, but I, you know, at, at this point in my life, when I had an opportunity to come and just focus on looking at art and trying to puzzle out what I think about it and share it with people, that became very compelling for me, so. How does that make you feel that some of your influence at SFAI is now being pushed backwards? Like, does that? I, you know, I guess I have trust in that place and its history. 
It will it will long outlast us all. I'm quite sure of it. Whether it's you know on good financial footing today or or not, and I, to be honest, I don't really know. But I know that it's always a struggle for institutions of that scale. And I mean, I have a lot of friends there, and I still care very much about the place. It's a, if if anybody has never been to the San Francisco Art Institute. It, it isn't just a school in one important sense. It's a beautiful, beautiful building with fabulous views across the bay, with a, um, a great mural by Diego Rivera. And it just, it's a special place, and it'll always have a special place in my heart. What would you change about your career if you could take a time machine back? What would you do different? Mm. You only get one time jump. Yeah, one time jump. <laughs> you know, I... Probably all jobs are very much about people, the people that you work with and the people that, if you're a boss, the people that reported to you or, or that you were trying to lead. And that's the hardest part of, of every job that I've ever had is the dealing with the people. It's also the most satisfying part of the job, but you know the, the two go hand in hand. I mean, if, if, if anybody who's listening has a relationship, they know that it's really, really hard and really, really satisfying. And these are relationships. So what would I change? I would be ever, ever more understanding or more kind or more responsive to the needs of the people that I worked with. I never feel like I've done it right. But I, have, but I, do, I do get a lot of good feedback from people that I once worked with that, that it went well. So, so you've that. got your There's imposter that. syndrome in check. Good, my, healthy my, ego. My what system? Your imposter syndrome my, that everybody has, where you're oh, like, yeah, they're yeah, going to yeah. know I have no idea what I I'm doing. I certainly <laughs> have the imposter syndrome, and yes, I have it in check. I think I do. <laughs> I think that's a really important part of the art world. Yes. <laughs> you're right. That it's is. sort of like How the way the we can operate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. Have you it's heard all of the imposter system? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I have a question for you. The art world seems to be changing drastically, and there's a lot of sort of shifts in the way that galleries are working. The middle of the galleries are disappearing, the new ones and the established ones, and it's getting a smaller and smaller family at the top. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sense of how where the art world is moving towards or some ideas about it? I think I think you're right that the, the art world, meaning the business of, mm -hmm. of art, is is changing dramatically. That can be very discouraging to all of us, and it must be to a, to a, an artist entering the field. But I'm, I really make a very clear distinction in my mind between art and what we're calling the art world in this conversation. How so? Well, I don't really think. For one thing, I don't. I don't think money can make the fabrication of certain works easier it can you know it can move the, the the art around the world more easily you know a bunch of things like that so money is important but I don't think of it as being about the money at all and I never ever have said oh I really have to go review that show because that's you know a gallery that has you know all the expensive artists or whatever and I really try quite hard to look at each work of art each way of working for itself. We were talking earlier before we turned on the mics about ceramics and how 
how important ceramics is becoming now to younger artists or entering artists. I've always been interested in what people might do with that medium, it, no less than I was interested in yeah. painting or sculpture in other media or whatever. But it's kind of fascinating that the that the art world wouldn't touch it for a really really long time. It is, and now it's sort of interesting to watch this kind of total shift, and everybody's kind of completely flummoxed about it. <clears throat> but it's kind of cool that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I the reason why I got down went down that path is because I think that art is going to survive regardless of what happens to the art world, and I think that um, I'm, I'm no. I have no real knowledge of what's going to happen in the future, but I pretty I feel it's pretty likely that there'll be some kind of weird collapse of the of of the art market as it is now. But art will survive, and artists will continue to make what they make regardless. We know this even in the most repressive of governments. Artists make artists stay free. Right. The, the good ones stay free and make good work, even when there is no money. Artists make work. The art and the artist just are apart from all those those mechanisms, really. And the mechanisms become way be, are tools for us to try and understand what's happening, or to share it, or distribute it, or categorize it. But it all, you know, all, none of that is possible without the object itself and the and the maker. Mm-hmm. And the ideas. Yeah. Well. Yes. Because exactly. they're not all objects, but. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, well, I said the maker, yeah. meaning, but yeah, you're the, right. Yeah. I, I absolutely, I stand corrected. Oh, that wasn't, <laughs> I, that wasn't meant for a correction. <laughs> the maker and her ideas. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the most overblown bag of hot air in the art world? Oh, no. No! Ah! <laughs> Well, probably Jerry Salt. So, however, <laughs> however, he's also um, he's also funny and entertaining, mm-hmm. and um, tells good jokes. Yeah, he does, and he and he certainly works his ass off. So, I I mean, I have mixed feelings about him. I'm certainly pleased for him that he got the the Pulitzer Prize this year. I think I think he really really works hard. But I wish that he was a little more um, introspective. I want to ask you a little bit about the way writing has changed. Mm-hmm. So now all reviews are fairly short, uh-huh, usually, and they're yeah. like the eight hundred page eight, 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 or the eight hundred word mm-hmm. review mm-hmm. is like a big. You know, it's like everything has kind of been reduced down to that. And I'm wondering if, you know, so when you read something, you get a, just a little bit of everything, and that's changed a lot from the way people used to do more in depth investigations into artists. I think that's absolutely true, but I also yep. think there's there there are different venues that people write for. I I what I love about one of the, one of the many things I love about my job is that I write for a general interest newspaper and I write for a general audience. I I, I would I don't think I'd really last very long if I was trying to be an academic kind of critic. And so the the shorter review is in response to people's shortened attention span and that sort of thing. I think you can say I think you can say a lot in a in a short amount of words. What I do resent is starting to happen here and I've resisted it, but who knows how long mm-hmm. how long this lasts. I mean maybe someday I just can't do this job anymore because because they'll insist and I won't do it. But I what I don't like is when 
we create slots based on on somebody's idea of like what is the right space for an art review or a theater review or whatever we mm -hmm. have a whole we have a whole great crew of critics here in, in all number of different fields i think we and and generally we still do make room for what we need so if something only needs to be 150 words then that's what you should publish and if it needs to be we do it in inches more than words, um, mm -hmm. 40 inches, which would be um, a thousand words instead of 800 words. Then, you know, then it should be that. Now we're not going to run 80-inch reviews in the newspaper for a general right. audience. So, but uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting, going down a, a rabbit hole here. <laughs> I, I, when I took this job. I said that I, I thought that the job was to to learn in public, and the part that I love, and I'm, and I still believe that the part that is the most fun about this job is that I take people through my thought process and how I got to uh, my my responses to this work of art or this exhibition or whatever, and that allows me. I mean, of course, you need to have a pretty good base in understand, you know, in looking at art. But it allows me to go and see something that I have absolutely no background in. You know, for, for example, I'm really not very well versed in Asian art, but I do go to the Asian Museum, the Asian Art Museum here, which is an excellent museum, and I do review their shows. And I make clear in my pieces that I'm not an expert here, but I'm going to learn about this and share that experience with you. And, and I. I don't mean learn about it by asking the curator what she meant to do. That's, not, <laughs> That's you know, cheating. I mean, that, well, it's not only cheating. It's no. not very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's not very it's interesting like a one in so many ways. Yeah. And and it's not. It's. I, I okay. So I start with the assumption, and not everybody does this, that I I only want to see what every viewer would would see when I go to an exhibition. So if there's a catalog, yes, I want the catalog, and I'll read it or I'll read parts of it or whatever. If there are wall texts, then I make sure that I pay attention to those. But I don't want to hear from the curator or the artist what they were trying to do because the, because the audience wouldn't have that opportunity. And in a really important way, I'm the advocate for the audience. And as I say, I'm you know, trying to take people through my, through my thinking process, and I want them I mean, I suppose this is a little didactic sounding, but I don't mean it to be this way. I want them to, to learn to have that experience themselves and enjoy that experience that, that I have in seeing something that's totally new to me, whether it's a contemporary artist that is not shown before and therefore it's, it's new to me, or ancient art that, I, you know, that mm -hmm. I never studied and therefore it's new to me. Now I will, because the general audience has this opportunity too, I will go and do some other research if I'm if I'm really at sea. Mm. You know what? Where did this come from? What you know? What is this? And so I might, you know, obviously use the internet, which is what we do more and more. Or go to a book or whatever. Um, but I try again. It, I mean, I try to reveal to people how I got to what my opinion is or what my um, interpretation of this exhibition mm -hmm. or work is. Do you have a particular a, kind of an agenda when you write? I mean, or a goal for how you 
I mean, I know it's interesting that you think about it as an audience member and you don't necessarily like interview the artist or call them up and mm. question them or something. I, did, I definitely know? don't do that unless yeah. I do an interview. I mean, I've, I've occasionally done right, interviews, yeah. but, um, and then that's, everybody knows what that is. No, I don't want to do that. Um, I have, I have very specific, uh, oftentimes I have very specific people that I'm writing for. In fact, I will, I mean, it's for a general audience, <laughs> but here's this thing that I know that this particular friend of mine would never get or would be really pissed if I said this is really something that they should see. And they'd be like, what? Why, why are you making me look at this? And so sometimes I'll, they don't know who they are, but sometimes I will write specifically to that person, which Here I enjoy comes doing. Charlie. Well, yeah, which I enjoy <laughs> doing. I'd well, to, you know, like to try to bring him along mm -hmm. or her along. Are you ever um, going to tell people that you wrote a, like the articles for them? You ever going to reveal it? I. <laughs> I can think. I can think of one specific time when I did actually tell somebody. They weren't flattered. <laughs> it, 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 didn't, it didn't really. You know. I mean, eventually we made up. But <laughs> I think writing is a kind of thinking. So, I the, I can't tell you how many times I've sat down thinking I was going to say one thing about an exhibition, and by the time I'm done, I like it's radically different opinion than I had when I first sat down mm -hmm. and it's the writing that gets me there. What's something you'd like to see phase out in arts writing? <laughs> well, there's two things. There's the, there's the really simplistic approach, which is, you know, which is what Karen was suggesting, you know, the, the, the art, the writer who basically what, he or she does is to ask the curator or the or the artist what they, you know, were trying to do, mm -hmm. and then they write that down. I don't. That I would like to see that go away. Or it's, it's purely descriptive with no no insight. Yeah, although, although yes, but although I do think sometimes really good description is really good criticism in itself. But that you know so but I, the, but the two extremes of the person who feels that they have to use words that. Um, make them look smart and take on concepts that are, well, concepts can be, the most complex of thinking can be written about clearly, I believe. And so the people who don't get that or are trying to prove something about themselves um, with the language they use or whatever, it just makes me crazy. Mm. That's not to say that I don't use big words, because I do often. But I got to use vertiginous today. <laughs> that was from one of yours. Oh, good. <laughs> we learned that word yesterday. We did. So I taught you a new word. That's, that's right. Nice. That's very nice. Um, and we've but, used but see, it. That's a word, but that's a word that really has... The, what other word would you use? Dizzying, I guess, but, you know. We you went know. across the street to the mall thing, and it's got, like, a part where you look up in a dome, and we're like, whoa, <laughs> <Yeah>. vertiginous. <laughs> so <he describes> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. So you can go over and check it out and see if we did a good My job. My criticisms are a little less fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm told that I'm a clear writer, and I, and I want to be that. So you said that you actually get to sort of choose what you do. Mm -hmm. Do you have ever sort of set out to have a, a kind of plan of how you articulate what's going on in this city? Or well, that's very fair to ask. And, and, and yes, in the sense that it's really important to me to make sure that I 
occasionally write about the galleries, that I'm not only writing about the museums, that I, I don't set out to find work by women or people of color or whatever, but I do look and see, am I being balanced in the, you know, in the range of work that I'm looking at? Although I'd like to claim that, I, that I'm balanced. I mean, I, I honestly feel that I, it turns out that I'm balanced because I'm interested in a lot of things and it all sort of comes out in the end to be pretty, you know, pretty broad range of work that I write about. I, you know, I certainly try to map out what I might be writing about over the next few months, making sure that because it is for a general interest newspaper, I feel I have to cover every major show at, at the major mm -hmm. museums. So I do that, and then, but then make sure that in the spaces in between, I will go to the smaller galleries and, and that kind of thing. I'm, I wish that there were, to be honest, I wish that I thought that there were more extraordinary exhibitions and programs at the at the really small galleries and such. And in general, it feels to me that that an institution has or you know, or gallery has to get to a certain scale and a certain maturity before before they're interesting enough for me to write about for for my audience. So one of the things I'm interested in, so I used to show a lot in San Francisco, and there was, at one time, a really thriving artist-run space um, situation. And then, you know, with the, you know, the housing crisis and, you know, how expensive it is to mm -hmm. live here, a lot of those spaces, they've all moved, they've all downsized, or they've all... And it's interesting, the same thing happened in L.A., but what's happened now is that there's over 100 artist-run spaces, whereas in 1991 there were three. In LA. So it's in yeah, and I'm curious if the same kinds of things are happening here, maybe in Oakland or you know, not necessarily in the city itself, but it, but if there's, there just seems like a, a kind of movement that's happening where a lot of artists are actually getting involved in the production of their own means in I, some interesting way, and I I'm definitely think and I'm interested true. in that. I definitely think that's true. I think that the the um, platform might be different from what it might have been, mm -hmm. you know, 30 years ago. For one thing, there used to be more state money, more federal money for these projects. So when that goes away, then you need to find some other way to do this. And as you know as well as I do, there are a lot of artists that have started gallery, you know, commercial galleries. It doesn't mean to say, mm -hmm. that's not to say that they're really going to make any money at it, but they think of it more in terms of a commercial gallery and we're doing an exhibition and, you know, it's in my front room and I... Made you know. show cards. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I cleared out my living room, and, I, and that's, yeah. now that's my gallery. And they can be extraordinary programs, as we all know. So it does seem like the, the model is oftentimes for younger artists is the commercial gallery world and less the sort of mini-museum model that the old artist space often was. How often do you get around to the alt shows like that, though? I am certain not enough for the people who are involved in those galleries. I do try, and I get around a lot. But, it, but again, well, for one thing, I, I am only one person, and, and there's things that I feel like I have to do. So again, you've got the big museums, and now you've got the what appear to be suggest themselves as going to be really interesting um, gallery shows. And so by the time you start doing all that, 
you do miss out on this mm. on the smaller spaces. We do have a we have. I'm not the only art writer here. I'm the only art critic. But we have at least two other people who write about visual art a lot. The the system is that they you know they've been told and, and this may change over time, but they've been told you know Charles is the critic, but you write but but do keep us informed, and so they so they will do more informational newsy kind of articles. And one of the two, Ryan Cost, is particularly interested in work by artists that don't have access, or traditional forms of access, so women and artists, people of color and that sort of thing, which, again, is not to say that I think this lets me off the hook in any way, but Ryan makes a special, special beat out of that for the paper, which I think is really good. That's meaningful content, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, those definitions between an art critic and an art writer, which is one of the things I was going to ask you. Yeah, is he not allowed to say bad things? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, so my, my boss, the guy who hired me, mm-hmm. um, was very strong on what he thought this meant, but he died unexpectedly. So this is a guy named David Wigand. And so I think things might be changing now, but David had a very sort of... When, when either freelancers, because we occasionally use freelancers or other um, reporters here, wrote, he'd be like, "No, I don't want your opinion. Charles is the opinion person. Yours mm. is the yours is the." You're just telling us where the things are. Explanatory thing. Yeah. Now, I think David would have been the first to recognize that there's no such thing as right. pure objectivity. I mean, you you know, you, you do bring um, judgment to what you're going to write about and all the rest of it. But that's another point. In fact, they're, they're often, and I guess, I, I guess this is going to sound prideful and I am proud of it, but it's, but it's also true. They're often assigned articles. I'm not assigned things because that's, right. that's, that's one of the differences here. It's interesting. Yeah. So do art writers always aspire to be art critics? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. You'd have to ask them. Oh, I'll have to um, go by and do a little interview. Ryan, get in here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know that they do. No, you know what? I, I'll tell you that they, they don't always because right. the other guy here who writes a lot about visual art is a guy named Sam Whiting, excellent writer, super, super great reporter. But I think he would say, I don't really want to be involved in the you know the the critique the, the, of the, yeah the noodling you yeah. know I mean he he doesn't really <laughs> want to you know I mean he he would think of it I think again we need to talk to mm-hmm. Sam but I think he would think of it as that's just too sort of self-involved and he Sam always says I'm interested in the people and I want to talk to the people so precisely the opposite of what we were talking about before right. Sam wants to hear what that curator thinks she mm-hmm. was doing and what that artist is trying to to say and and also and sounds like the interested in what the audience is getting too, which is interesting because you don't necessarily query the audience; it's just your own relationship to that. Well, that's um, and that's, that's another that's enough, just yes. another kind of interesting element. If he's mm-hmm. going and trying to sort of like hang out with audiences, is finding out what they get from something. That's another interesting perspective, kind of. Yeah, I don't it's know. That, I don't know that he does go to speak mm. to audiences much, but maybe so. The paper, like. Many publications is quite interested in what the audience thinks, and we try to measure that in a lot of different ways. We get, I mean, you, you don't you don't really know when the newspaper goes out, 
you don't really know how many people read that, but you certainly know when when something goes digitally precisely right. how many people are reading it and where they where they heard about it and all the rest of that. And we track that very closely. And I see that as a really important tool to understanding what the audience thinks. I I always respond to any email or letter that I get. I mean not not a press release, but you know, a commentary yeah. of any sort. I always respond, mm. and I like those relationships and interactions. We do too. Thanks for having yeah. us. <laughs> <laughs> um, Can you think of anything else to add? What have we not covered that you'd like to talk about? This is your chance. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think. I think we've we've. We've talked a lot about the thing that matters so much to me, which is that it is really about the audience. When I, it, my work at, in museums, I always felt as though it was the, the visitor, the viewer, the audience that most needed me. Not to say that, or needed me, needed us, needed the institution. Mm-hmm. Not to say that the artist didn't have, have needs too, but that uh, it, it just seemed to me that with the scale of expenditure that we would with how much money we were spending and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing that it, it was most important that we made sure that our audience was getting something of quality back out of that and that's the way I feel about the paper and, the, and I keep talking about the paper we often do here but in <laughs> fact it's a media it's a media company it's not just a newspaper and the, the digital side of it in fact is growing very fast and it's it'll take over the paper I'm sure within the next five years, five or ten years. I'm loving working for, particularly in this day and age, with the way news and journalism are under attack, as we all Mm -hmm. know, here in this country and in other countries. I'm loving being at a place that has the kind of mission that this place does. And it's, it's being a Hearst paper, we don't, which means it's not owned by a big corporation, it's Mm -hmm. still family owned. We have the I guess luxury in some way of of being very mission centered, so it's just fabulous to be around and see see people doing a job that I could never do in terms of their being out reporting on the fires or reporting on politics or mm-hmm. things like that. That um, to be in that environment is really extraordinary. And and again, what I do, the fact that it is situated in an environment that that includes the news about the weather and the news about the sports and the, and what's happening in the fires and the political news and all the rest of that, I find really exciting because it says that the San Francisco Chronicle believes that all of these different topics are worth attention by a city. And it's not, you know, we're not only interested in this or, or you know, in, in just a part of it. When, you know, if you were completely money-driven, you might say, okay, which things get the most? You know, if sports gets a lot more mm-hmm. attention, then only, you know, we're only going to do sports and we're not going to do theater criticism or classical, you know, classical music criticism or whatever. This is a place that has a full-time classical music critic and a full-time theater critic and a full-time wine critic. And um, Did they party uh, together? <laughs> <laughs> we should do more parties. Yes. We do. But but we certainly all respect each other, and we all we work at different times. Of course, if you're a theater music mm-hmm. critic, then you're out at night. But no, this is 
And if you're a wine critic, you're all day and night. You're doing <laughs> the best job. I'll introduce you to her. You'll like her very much. <laughs> so you usually uh, work in jobs for seven years. Um, <laughs> Seems are, to be, are, doesn't are you, it? What's your next job? What's your fantasy job? Do you know how old I am? Yes. <laughs> you do. You, you can, can make up out. a job title in this situation. Mine is a professional puppy snuggler sponsored by Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> So if you so, have like any like you know I really just want to be a pajamas tester that'd be great. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I think probably the next thing that I do after this would be um, to actually write longer. You, you, if as much as I was saying that it's okay to write right. short, I think I, I've got to figure out at some point what's the book that's in me. I've done a number of long exhibition catalogs and such, which are book length. Right. But I'd like to. Um, I need to figure out what my topic is. Oh, so you don't know yet? No, I don't. Okay, so we have a, a book to look forward to, probably. At some point, yes, yeah. let's hope so. Okay, cool. Well, I, we approve of that next job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, being authors yourselves. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> well, we want to thank you very much. Well, yes, thank, thank you. you. I'm Megan Flanders, and I'm an artist. I'm Karen Atkinson, and I'm an artist. I'm Charles Demery, and, I, and I'm a museum director, college president, art critic, and friend of art and artists. Woo! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again to our guest, Charles Desmarais, and the San Francisco Chronicle for making this episode possible. You can find his social media at ArtGuy1 on Twitter. You can find us at ArtWorldPodcast.com. And thank you, Chris Reynolds, for being our associate producer on this episode. Oh, and to the wine critic lady, call me. Let's party. <laughs>